likely on your phone, in your hand, while you're playing this very podcast is an app or site using Akamai in the background so that you can listen, search, and discover new information as fast as you can think, type, or speak. Accelerating the delivery of the right content and blocking cyber attacks are the details that Akamai solves to give you a safe and seamless experience. Leading the charge to improve security and accelerate connectivity is Dr. Robert Blumoff, Executive Vice President and CTO of Akamai. What we're seeing is this evolution toward a perimeterless world where applications can live anywhere and employees can work from anywhere. And the way you want to glue all that together, your applications and your employees is no longer with a private network, but rather it's with end-to-end access mechanisms. You hear language like zero trust. It's not a term I love. I don't love the word zero trust, but the concept is the right concept, which is that you have endpoints and you want to control the conversation between those endpoints. What users can speak to which applications, which applications can speak to which other applications and so on. All that has to be tightly controlled. And you really think of it as endpoint to endpoint, not on network versus off network. A new way of thinking about the problem is often the first step towards coming up with an innovative solution. On this episode of IT Visionaries, you'll hear more about how Robert and his team are working best to serve their customers' customers, all while growing and scaling the company. They're thinking about the solution with an endpoint-to-endpoint mindset. Learn more and enjoy this episode. Akamai is a huge company. I think a lot of businesses already rely on your technology. But in case anyone's listening is not familiar, if you could, please tell us what is Akamai and what does it do? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, we like to say that our purpose is to make life better for billions of people billions of times a day, and that we do that by powering and protecting life online. You know, more specifically, if you start looking at our customers, you know, we have thousands of enterprise customers in numerous verticals from you know e-commerce financial services media and entertainment e-government healthcare travel and and hospitality and so on and in it, when we say powering the online experience we talk about delivering their content and accelerating their applications so that their customers that is our customers customers get a better online experience And of course, protecting is all about protecting our customers' web applications from from cyber attacks, from from threats, which includes things like DDoS attacks. It includes application layer attacks. It includes um, bots. And of course, um, most relevantly recently, of course, protecting our customers from uh, ransomware. And for those that aren't so familiar, how do you make that, that vision, that promise come to life? Because this is one of those things, like I said, like, I think just about every product uses Akamai. You may not know it, but you use it. <laughs> and so people are like, well, how can I use something I don't actively know I'm paying for or something like that? And I was like, uh, it's like, <laughs> I, I try to describe it. I do a terrible job, but <laughs> like content, I, you know, describing a content delivery network and so on, it's pretty, pretty difficult. I wonder if you could share with us, you know, how does exactly does it serve and help these many billions of transactions a day? Right. Well, all of these products, whether it's accelerating applications or protecting applications from uh, cyber attacks, are, are built on a platform that in its physical sense is hundreds of thousands of machines 
that we run distributed all around the world in 135 countries, well over a thousand networks, um, thousands of locations. On those servers, we run a proprietary stack of software that we've developed. And so you can think of this as a layer of functionality that lives in between our customers and their customers. So a user who is going to a web application, rather than interacting directly with, with our customer's website, the interaction goes through us. Um, and we can mediate that conversation through an Akamai server that is near the end user, Akamai servers that are near our customers. And by running the conversation between, between the Akamai servers, we can add value. We can accelerate, we can deliver, we can scale. And of course, we can block um, bad requests, for example, that might be attacks like DDoS attacks or application layer attacks and things like that. So this is, you know, and I'm going to date you a little bit because we did a little homework and we saw that you joined Akamai, Akamai in 1999. You know, for a lot of our younger listeners that, you know, are just entering the workforce, for example, they, they don't remember what the internet used to be like. <laughs> they don't remember. <laughs> they don't remember how long it took, you know, to see even a photo, right? And it was, it was more than bandwidth. It was kind of like what you talked about. There was no way to bring compute loads, anything like that closer to the customer. It was no way. They had to like ping across phone lines, go across, you know, instead of thousands of computers, it went around like, you know, 20, uh, it went around like a couple computers, had to reach its storage, send it back. I mean, it was a terribly slow process. When you were researching and developing basically pre-Akamai, what did you see that said, this is going to be the way of the future? This is how we're going to do it. We're going to bring all everything basically closer to the customer. It's like sheer physics alone. That'll make the experience faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there's obviously a long history here, but um, maybe the best way to do this is to start with the early 90s when I was a graduate student at MIT. I was a PhD student in the lab for computer science, um, working on the third floor of the building, which is where the theory group was. Our research at that time was really mathematics, it was algorithms, and the focus was on distributed systems, parallel systems, networks, trying to find better ways to move data and store data around on networks. And as algorithmists, as you may know, the focus is always on scale. You know, algorithmists, mathematicians, we like to study how our solutions behave when the size of the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, interestingly enough, I think oftentimes algorithmists are criticized for that in that the, the more pragmatic um, uh, practitioners or, or researchers will look at that and say, well, your algorithms really only make sense at ridiculous scale. And the reality of the world is that the networks that matter are only tens of nodes, hundreds of nodes, maybe thousands of nodes. Now, anybody who was saying that would have been pre-internet, certainly pre-World Web. But in the early 90s, you know, the World Wide Web had been invented. We had um, Tim Berners-Lee had invented the, the, the protocols. Um, you had the browsers, right? The Mosaic browser had come out of the National Center for Supercomputer Applications, and it was really starting to explode. And the other fortunate thing that happened was that the um, World Wide Web Consortium moved into MIT. And in particular, it actually moved into the lab for computer science and, in fact, the third floor of the, uh, of the building, which is where the theory group was. And Tim Berners-Lee obviously was seeing his invention really explode. And the theoreticians that he was working next door to were of great interest to him. And that started these conversations. And Tom Layton, who was one of the founders of the company, now CEO, he and his graduate student, uh, Danny Lewin, who had been working on these kinds of problems, um, founded the company and they founded the company in 1998. 
um, with this idea of using the algorithmic technology that, that they had developed, building this on distributed systems and using mathematics to solve what was then viewed primarily really as a performance problem. Um, now, of course, in recent years, we also now see a security problem and the same sort of distributed systems approach is actually highly relevant for cybersecurity. And, and that's been a big focus for us over the last 10 or so years. Um, I honestly don't know whether back in the late 90s, whether Tom and Danny really um, uh, had that in their vision when they founded the company, but they were, they were pretty smart guys. And uh, it's possible that they were thinking about cybersecurity even then. You know, when we think about internet applications and it's, it's in a lot of, you know, honestly, a lot of developers that I know as well, like for example, use, user experience developers, front end developers, they really don't think about like how it is physically possible to bring this much information to a customer who is, like you said, anywhere in the world. And so all these infrastructure tools exist to make this stuff happen, which is pretty cool. I have a little bit of background infrastructure, not gonna pretend I know nearly as much as you, but still I, I value it. You know what I mean? I, I think it's just fascinating. When you talk to customers today, you mentioned that they're now thinking and leaning more towards like, hey, how do you protect this data as it's flowing back and forth? How do you, you know, DDoS is overloads on my network. Do they still have an appreciation for the leaps and bounds you guys are making? Because, or has it become one of those things where it's like, well, I'm always going to have a big conduit. I'm always going to big pipe. I'm always going to big CDNs that I can just, because they need this service, but do they understand like some of the leaps and bounds you guys are making? Is it impacting their business? Can they notice it? Yeah, I think more and more, they really see these two things together, power and protect, performance and protection. Because in a more traditional approach where maybe you're buying boxes or something like that, oftentimes cybersecurity can get in the way of performance. It actually slows things down and your end users, your customers, your employees end up with a bad experience. And whenever your employees or your customers are getting a bad experience from a performance point of view, obviously that's a negative thing. And it makes it harder to adopt the key security me mechanisms that you really need to protect yourself. So whenever you have security and an experience running counter to each other, that's a huge problem. What we've done is we've built our performance products and our security products on the, on, a, on the same platform. It's one platform. And so the same platform that protects also provides performance, the same uh, platform that provides performance also protects. So the two things work together. And I think that's something that is very much appreciated by the customer base. Because again, if you adopt security in a way that hinders performance, it just won't get adopted. So you've got to bring the two things together and, and, and find an approach that gives you security and performance. So that's why we say power and protect together. What industries are leaning on these types of technologies the most? I'm guessing media and entertainment just in gaming because everything's gone through like the streaming models. And there's, you know, when I think of gaming, there's probably more transactions happening in gaming than ever before, right? There's now like the, the demand for delivering content and experience to customers live and in real time. What industries are you seeing like constantly pushing Akamai, like your team, like, hey, I need more capacity, Robert, like the Bobby, I need more. Like this has got to <laughs> go up. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Media and entertainment, um, you know, obviously has been a huge uh, vertical for us, um, both from the point of view of scale and performance, but also security. But now increasingly, you also see, you know, finance and e-commerce um, and many other industries, healthcare, where Performance really matters, but increasingly now they are coming under uh, under attack. You know, the the attackers, say, five to 10 years ago, you, we really thought of them in terms of, you know, you had the kind of hacktivists, um, groups like Anonymous, who were kind of trying to make a point. And, you know, you obviously didn't want to be targeted by them, but 
the world today is very different where now you've really got a financial motive in the picture. You know, the, the criminals have found a way to make money um, with cybercrime and not only make money, but do it in a scalable fashion. They've got the tools, the mechanisms, the, the, the business model, if you will, the criminal business model that allows them to scale and, and make money in, in cybercrime. And that means that everybody now becomes a target. And not surprisingly, you've seen the headlines over the course of 2021. Um, they weren't targeted at any one vertical. They're targeted anywhere the criminals can make money. And that wasn't just an anomaly for 2021. That was an inflection point that we're going to see going forward. And so it, it, it's not confined to any one vertical. It's really the, the, the attackers are going after any organization where they can make money. Would you say that's where more of your energy is now spent? Like, how would you say your day is cut in terms of which product lines to focus on? Because obviously all you can't do all things all the time evenly, right? So you have to split your time. Well, what are you guys prioritizing right now? It sounds like cybersecurity is near the forefront. I'd love to hear how you think of the product blend that's going to come out uh, over the, like the next, you know, one, two, three, four, five years. Yeah. Cybersecurity is a big focus. It's the fastest growing part of our business. It's now well over a billion dollars annually. And as I said, growing rapidly. Um, and I think there's just an, 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 as a business for us, there's an enormous opportunity because it, it's not going to go away, you know, especially now that the criminals have really found a scalable business model. Um, it's not going to go away. It's only going to grow. And therefore the needs are, you know, are, are obviously there. So yeah, we focus a lot there, you know, so we'll continue to prioritize a lot of our organic development as well as our mergers and acquisitions uh, activity in cybersecurity. I would also add to that though, though compute. I think compute becomes an increasingly large part of, of our business where our customers can run more and more of their application workload on our platform. So rather than having to provision compute themselves, they can provision it on our platform where it runs near their end users, near their customers, near their employees, and provides greater scale, greater performance, and a greater experience. And in some sense, allows them to customize their use of our platform. In summary, cybersecurity, yeah, huge priority, probably number one um, shortly after that, uh, compute. And one of the things that because of where you sit inside the organization, I know that CTOs of big companies typically get presented with big ideas, big projects. Obviously, people want you to build, help them build what it is they're trying to accomplish. You know, that puts you in a unique position to kind of have a preview of what a lot of companies are trying to bring to the consumer base in the next couple of years. What are some of the industries that you're just really excited about, like what they're trying to accomplish? Like how do, how do you, in, in, if you could explain that in a way that for someone who's not in the industry could understand, like how will this impact me as a customer? Give us an idea of some of the things that are coming is, are you seeing movement in the autonomous vehicle space? Are you seeing movement in the, the healthcare space that is going to bring like rapid at-home testing? I know Theranos obviously is in the news a lot now because it's a total bust, but the hypothesis behind that is still something I want. I hope people are chasing, which is better at-home care. I don't know. Certainly, a lot of people are pushing a lot of things towards you know asking of uh, asking of you. I'm curious where where are certain industries you see like you think they're going to make groundbreaking innovations in the next couple of years for us as consumers. Yeah, I mean, I do think that for those of us who work at at decent sized enterprises. There's a fundamental rethinking of how enterprises sort of architect themselves and how they serve their employees um, as well as their customers. Some of that has really been accelerated by, of course, the pandemic and the fact that we're all working from home or many of us are and probably will continue to work a substantial portion of our business, of our of our work lives at home, maybe indefinitely, um, as well as uh, this 
rise in, in, in ransomware and the rise in cyber criminality. Those things, I think, have accelerated a trend that was already there. And the way I characterize it is, by and large, breaking down the, the, the old notion of a boundary where an enterprise had some notion of a perimeter and you were either working in the enterprise or you're working outside the enterprise. And that really breaks down in a world where, if you think about it, your applications now live in the cloud somewhere. They're not on-prem. They certainly, increasingly, they're, they're not on-prem. And I don't think we're far from a world where the vast majority of applications are not on-prem. They're in the cloud. Employees expect to work anywhere. You can work from home. You can work from the road. You can work from a customer site. You can work from a conference. You can work from, you know, some point we'll go back into the office. You can work from the office. You can work from anywhere. So the notion of, you know, sort of on and off doesn't really make any sense. And so the notion, I think what we're seeing is this evolution toward a perimeterless world where applications can live anywhere and employees can work from anywhere. And the way you want to glue all that together, your applications and your employees is no longer with a private network, but rather it's with end-to-end -end access mechanisms. You hear language like um, zero trust. It's not a term I love. I don't love the word zero trust, but the concept is the right concept, which is that you have endpoints and you want to control the conversation between those endpoints. What users can speak to which applications, which applications can speak to which other applications and so on. All that has to be tightly controlled. And you really think of it as endpoint to endpoint, not on network versus off network. I, I think that's actually a huge change in the, in the way that enterprises work. And I think it's a good thing for employees because I think it makes it easier for employees to embrace this work from anywhere concept, which, which I think is really the world we're going to be in um, indefinitely going forward. Couldn't agree more. Everyone wants to, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the top search terms in Indeed now, right? Where people want to <laughs> want to know who, where, who, who lets me work anywhere. And with that idea, this perimeter list, are you seeing also more enterprises like work together to like kind of co-build experience, like you said, maybe it's not a product anymore. Maybe it's like an experience, like you're going to be able to use this product to do this thing. For example, we had some, a guest on from the office of the CTO at Google, and they're talking about like their number one job is to take companies to mash them together and figure out new solutions that of course benefit people like you and I on a regular basis. Are you seeing more activity in that place where more companies are collaborating? Like, Hey, we need to, we can build something together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's always a desire to work in sort of the, these larger contexts. And I think that's one of the exciting things about being in an enterprise is not only the colleagues that you get to work with in your own enterprise, but the opportunity to then extend your frontier out to your customer base, but also to partners. And I think more and more people find, you know, more things can get done in, in a partnership context. And oftentimes, even organizations that compete on one dimension will cooperate on another dimension. And, and more and more, I think this architecture where it's a perimeterless architecture and you put in place the right end-to-end -end protections and the right end-to-end -end mechanisms actually can facilitate that kind of cooperation and collaboration. Um, the old mechanisms were really very clunky. I think today we have much better ways of thinking about it. You mentioned Google, by the way, and you know I, I mentioned Zero Trust. You know they were early on that. They, they they did this thing called Beyond Corp long before anybody used the word Zero Trust. And really, Beyond Corp was actually you know what today is called Zero Trust. It's um it, it's a great idea, and it's an idea that I think a number of other organizations are now embracing. Um, we certainly are. We not only have a product line that is really all about Zero Trust. Um, but we also implement it in our own in our own environment. So as an Akamai employee, I no longer really think about on net versus off net. I simply access applications according to what I have permission to access. 
We even, by the way, go so far, I know I'm going a little bit um, afield, but this is something that just, just triggered my thought, which is that we actually have this concept also of thinking about our office buildings, really sort of like, like coffee, like private coffee shops with great Wi-Fi. Meaning that even when I go into the office building and I connect to the Wi-Fi at the office building, I'm not in any sense on the network. I'm still like it's, it's exactly the same as if I was in Starbucks, just with a bunch of my other of my colleagues. And I use the remote access mechanism that I use at home, even when I'm in the office building. So in some sense, all access is remote access, no matter where I am. I'm very fond of this metaphor of thinking about the office building of the future as a private coffee shop with great Wi-Fi, because I really think that's where we're headed. You go to the office building for a reason. You don't just do it by default because you woke up in the morning and of course you go to the office building. That's that's the world we used to live in. Now you do it for a reason and you do it because you want to work face to face with your colleagues. You want to share a meal together. You want the conviviality of your peers. And in doing so, it's not unlike working from a private coffee shop, just, hey, you've got your colleagues next to you. And there's no reason that you need to architect the, the network any, any differently, really. And that's a very freeing um, and enabling concept when you start thinking of all access as remote access and you start thinking about the office building as really a private coffee shop with great Wi-Fi. No, I like that. I mean, I, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, we're seeing that so much. And by the way, as long as it, being someone from the media entertainment place, I want you to know that everyone, the number one thing the media people want is upload speed. It's not the download. They need, <laughs> they need upload speed. So like I could see that, in, especially in uh, media companies, because uh, most public Wi-Fi's, they really control upload. Uh, so that's what prevents people in media. It's, it sounds crazy, but people in media, we've had CIOs of uh, like Fox, NBC. They talk about like when they stream, when they go to create live broadcasts and stuff. That's why they have to bring all their own equipment and gear because it's like, there's no such thing as you can't just tap into a public network and go upload fast enough. When you think about building this infrastructure of the world, this perimeterless world, we also know in tech, recruiting is one of the biggest challenges in the industry right now. We've got you know, a limited supply of very, very good engineers. A lot of companies want very good engineers. You are one of them. Talk about recruiting and like how you, how you guys approach acquiring talent to build this world. Do you see a lot of people that are interested in this segment, like the back-end infrastructure segment? Do you see people that want to do this? Um, is it something that, you, that takes convincing? I'd love to understand like what recruiting is like for you guys. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, recruiting great talent is, well, it's important, I think, for, for everybody. You know, obviously, you know, one approach is, is you know, we're in, we're in lots of different locations and, and increasingly now in this world where we can work from anywhere, we can also recruit from anywhere. I'm obviously subject to making sure that you're dealing with the appropriate laws and things like that. But I think the notion of being able to work from anywhere also means recruit from anywhere. That opens up the aperture. But, you know, for us, a big factor really is culture. Um, you know, we want to recruit people that are going to contribute not only to the products themselves, but also to the culture. It's less about, okay, a checkbox of a bunch of specific skills and more about do you really fit in with this culture and can you work with these people and can you have fun with these people and develop collaboratively uh, with these people. So a lot, of, a lot of job skills can be learned over time and can be developed on the job. You know, again, the culture fit is important and, and the, you know, people who are curiosity and who are curious and, and really have this approach of lifelong learning, I think, um, can, can make a big difference. So I, I try and think of, of, of recruiting and, and, and sort of the job search as less about checking the right boxes and more about um, do you have the right personality, culture, and, and um, are you going to fit in with this company and be able to do great things as an organization, not as an individual? 
Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. We hear that a lot, actually, coming from different tech companies, because of course you're building the future. So some of the skills you will need, you might not know to test for yet, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So one of the things I, I you know, I joke, we had a network specialist on once and we, I joke, well, how much better will the user experience be if you go from, you know, 5G to 10G? You know, I made that up, but like the, the idea that, have we reached in a point where people can't quite, you know, beyond cybersecurity, of course, cybersecurity is always going to need more and more improvements. But one of the things that Ackerman does is like that speed concept. What new technologies or experiences do you think are going to be unlocked along with the innovations that you guys are developing? Because when we think of AR, it feels like it's coming, you know, or soon to be here. The level of gaming we're now experiencing. Now I'm watching TV with 8K cameras. Like, I don't know what's happening. You know what I mean? How much better can it get? It sounds... And one of the one of the things that um, we had another guest on, they talked about was like, he's like, one of the things he hopes to unlock is like this idea that you can do, you know, scientific discovery on like gene DNA strands live in the cloud, like a Google Doc. And I'm like, well, how hard is that? He's like, you will not believe how hard that is. <laughs> and so um, I was curious, like some of the things that you're maybe really bullish on, exciting about that that are coming out because of these things that you're unlocking. Well, I, you know, I, I think in general, the, the power of connectivity is enormous. And it wasn't that long ago where connectivity was really confined to, um, you know, you had to go into, into your office building to have any decent connectivity. What you had at home was probably, you know, nearly useless if you had anything at home. Then you got to the point where, okay, people were starting to get some things at, at home and you had reasonable connectivity. You could start to see sort of a, maybe a low quality video. You know, maybe you were starting to watch, you know, little video clips and things like that. I mean, you could do that from home. You could also shop from home. And then, of course, really, you had this sort of broadband explosion. And we're now at the point where online from home or really um, office, wherever you are, as long as you have reasonable wired connectivity, you can do yeah, really high quality experiences, including what we're doing right now. Um, you know, thank goodness this, this pandemic is happening now instead of 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we would not have had these tools at our disposal to stay connected in the way that we have. So, uh, you know, I've often thought about that. I mean, how disastrous would it have been for our kids and their learning experience and our professional lives if this pandemic had happened 10 years ago before the invention of this kind of connectivity? I think what we still see lacking is sort of the mobile connectivity. You know, great at home, great in the office, but as you move around, you still suffer, I think, in terms of connectivity. And, and while, while the cost of connectivity has gone way down, you know, almost anything that gets any benefit from connectivity can be connected. There is the question of how, what, at what quality. And of course, then there's also the question of, um, of protection. You know, increasingly also as we work from home, we're using consumer grade devices to, to manage our, our work conversation and manage our work um, interaction. You know, those consumer grade devices and IoT, you know, these things, you know, notoriously are bad from a security point of view. And, you know, I think that's another area where we, I think there's, there's some hope that over time these things can get better and we can find a point where from anywhere you can get great connectivity and do it safely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I see that completely. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, one of the things I'm personally hopeful of, it's not going to be with just Aquamine, but it's going to be a host of new technologies that are emerging around the world is I'm imagining a world where Imagine things like where we're going through right now, where viruses and disease states of people become, could they become open source? Could they become where every doctor in the world could collaboratively work on a project versus right now we know that they're isolated to like within my hospital or within my pharmaceutical company. I got to figure out something on our side because we got to patent it together so that we could possibly do something with it. But 
this new bandwidth, this new ability to deliver data to the edge faster anywhere. And if network follows, connectivity follows, like, could that be? Because I think part of why software specifically has developed so fast is the fact that so many people could access it quickly and contribute. Um, I think that's been something that's probably not true in the medical field because I think things are more isolated, but we're soon getting to the point where this might be unlocked. I don't know. I'm hopeful for it, though. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, not, on, not only data sets, large data that's available and can be accessed from anywhere, but, uh, you know, also, as you mentioned, software stacks. You know, we now have just this incredible wealth of open source and available software stacks that allow developers to build significant capabilities very quickly. You know, when I first started programming, you know, really the only things that we used in terms of libraries, you, you know, you had standard IO, you had libc, and that was pretty much it. Nowadays, the, the, the wealth of libraries that are out there means that you can be so much more productive, so much more agile and build really incredible things. And you combine that with connectivity and the availability of data, it opens up a lot of frontiers. Yeah, I remember because I remember hearing how large the files are for like, just like uh, medical imaging records, how big of a file that that is. And how it's really, it's actually quite difficult to like put it anywhere for a collaborative work environment. So these kinds of technology can unlock so many crazy things. I think with the advent of more, also with more um, probably augmented reality experiences where people can train remotely as well in the medical field, I think it's going to be amazing, right? Like if, if we think about it, kind of, kind of like we're saying, like how did education done pre-internet in an event of a pandemic, you and I would have to walk to our kids' school. Like our, our teacher would have to go to school because they need a center point, a hub to prepare the assignments, lay them out in folders. We'd have to walk over, pick them up, drop them off, and then walk back the next day to find out if our kid was uh, doing okay or not. <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't, don't have no idea what we would have done, you know, if this, this pandemic had hit 10 years ago. As bad as it is now, I think we can be thankful that, that we have the connectivity nearly ubiquitous that we have today that's allowed us to maintain some semblance of interaction, com community, and, and of course, in the case of our kids, education. Bobby, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing a lot about what you're up to at Akamai, what you've been doing over your career. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Bobby, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we looked you up on Twitter and you got a great Twitter profile, okay? Uh, we'll link it up in the show notes below. It says you are an aspiring drummer, a bass player, and a juggler. So that opens up some doors for some questions. You clearly like music. I do, yeah. Let's start with the instruments. Which one are you better at? Are you a better drummer or are you a better bass player? Well, you know, I didn't grow up with anything. Like, I didn't grow up playing an instrument or anything like that. But um, as, as I had kids, I decided I really want them to have that as part of their experience. So my wife and I made the decision we would make music education just a mandatory part of their education, just like math is not optional, English is not optional. And so they all play. So I thought, well, okay, what an opportunity for me. Maybe I should uh, participate. So I started taking drumming lessons, had a great time. I developed this weird thing that's a long story that I won't tell, but I developed this weird condition called focal hand dystonia. You should look at it. It's hard to explain, but it means basically that my left hand won't make certain motions. It, it's weird. And in most, like, I, I, I can run my life just fine. I can type, I can do any, I can work my left hand just fine. But the specific motion of this, which you need as a drummer, I cannot make that motion with a drumstick in my hand. And it developed over time. And it got to the point where I just couldn't continue to advance drumming. So I thought, okay, let's try bass. 
Um, and it's also the one instrument that none of my kids play. So I figured if I add bass, we could have a family band. And I'm always looking for things we can do as a, as a family, like a family activity. So, all right, if I learn bass, we got a family band. So I started taking bass lessons. It turns out it's also affecting the fret, my, it's my left hand. So it's the fretting hand. And so it's actually giving me some trouble. I, I, I can play bass okay, but at some point the focal hand dystonia gets in the way. Um, so I think my musical career is pretty uh, limited, uh, but, but I do have fun with it. I'm a pretty rudimentary um, player, um, both on drums and on bass, um, but I enjoy it. And it lets me uh, participate with the kids as a, as a family band, which is super fun. And by the way, it, it, the focal hand dystonia doesn't affect juggling at all. Yeah, that that's the other thing. So you can juggle. Yeah, that motion is not affected by the focal hand dystonia. I'm not an especially good juggler, but. I learned when I was in high school, I don't know why, but when I was in high school, I just learned the basic three ball cascade juggling. And then when the pandemic hit, I made the decision that, all right, I want to learn how to juggle clubs because I never had learned, you know, juggling clubs. I'd never uh, learned that. And it takes some practice. And so I did. And then I just continued. So I've, I can now I've added four ball juggling to the repertoire. Um, I've added a few tricks with the clubs. I've added a lot of tricks with, with three balls, mills, mess and pullouts and all kinds of three ball tricks. And, and I just continue. By the way, it's also a, a great hobby from the point of view that I can do this anytime, you know, pretty much anywhere. You know, as much as I love things like skiing and water skiing, those aren't activities I can do every day, especially living in Cambridge. Whereas juggling is like, hey, I got five minutes free. I can just go to the other side of this right over there, pick up the balls or pick up the clubs and, and juggle a little bit. It's been a lot of fun. Do you ever juggle while walking around? Do people at your office know you have this skill? I really got more into this when the pandemic started, though. So not so much at the office. As I said, I learned when I was in high school, I could do a basic three ball cascade, a couple of tricks, but didn't really do it as a hobby. I just had it kind of something I had learned. It wasn't until the pandemic started that I was like, all right, let's do this. That's awesome. How about for music? You would go back to it. What kind of music do you like listening to? Oh, I mean, I, you know, I'm an old deadhead. I still listen to the listen to the great. I love the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM. Uh, but yeah, I listen to a lot of other sort of, you know, I guess what today might be called classic rock or um, things like that. How about your kids when they want to jam with you? What do you guys like to play? Well, I make them play just basic like sort of classic rock stuff, you know, Beatles, Stones and things like that. It's not what they love. They don't love particular bands sort of like we did when we were little. You know, they're all, you know, musicians. In fact, my oldest son, who's applying to college, is applying to performing arts uh, programs and uh, wants to, you know, he, he, he does some some singing and dancing. He's a great break dancer. Um, so he's actually kind of into the performing arts. Uh, he plays, he's a pretty good guitar player and also does some songwriting. So um, he's the one probably embracing it the most of my three kids, but yeah, you know, the, the, the family activity is just awesome. I'm with you. I, my, the way I teach my kids is I, I'm a personal believer that, you know, a sound mind travels in a sound body. So like I make my kids do physical things. I want them to do intellectual puzzle solving things. I'd love for them to be more creative, but they're all definitely really young now. I don't know when I should push them into doing some of the uh, more like, you know, other disciplines like my, my daughter, Isla, I'm like, you should do this. And she's like, ah, you know, I want to just color. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. There's only so much influence we have, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, we looked you up on LinkedIn. You went to three, it looks like we have you as three different schools. Is that right? MIT Brown and University of Texas. Yeah, I was an um, undergraduate at Brown, uh, did my PhD at MIT, and then for four years, I was on the faculty at the University of Texas. Loved all three of them. They were all great experiences in, in, in different ways. And what did the teaching experience teach you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually one of the things I pride myself on is being able to explain complicated technical things to, you know, almost any, any audience. Um, and I think I did learn some of that skill from my, my teaching experience. 
Um, I also had just you know a great advisor in graduate school who was a master at that, Charles Leiserson, who you may know is one of the authors of the famous algorithms book that a lot of people use in uh, in college or in grad school. Um, Charles was just a great advisor from that that point of view, and he just worked with me just so diligently to to learn how to express technical concepts to an audience of any type. I wanted to ask you about that because I noticed that your level of enthusiasm is super high. And, uh, you know, I, I would just, I was just imagining that, you know, teaching a tough subject like comp sci, like, you know, at minimum, it's nicer if I could hear from someone that's more enthusiastic, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely, yeah. I am enthusiastic. I, I do love doing it for sure. And last but not least, you know, we've met a lot of different people throughout the years of the show, but I think you might be the only grandson of an entertainer. I believe so. Uh, you have a famous grandfather. You are the grandson of Jack Benny, legendary American uh, American comic. Did you have a good relationship with him? Like, could you do you have stories of him? Oh yeah, you know, I, I was only ten when when he died, so I, it's not like you know I knew him all that well. But um, but he was granddad. and you know I remember you know he was a big baseball fan, and he used to take me to Dodger games, and that was kind of my first experience being aware of how famous he was because. I mean, besides, I was a huge baseball fan and I loved going to the games, but yeah, going with Jack Benny meant, you know, we were, we were hanging out with the owner of the team. We were, we could go down to the dugout and meet the players and, and all sorts of things like that. And people would be asking for autographs. It wasn't intrusive, like, like things might be today, but, um, and he loved being recognized and being a celebrity. I think he loved the fans and loved signing autographs and loved talking to, talking to fans. He really, really enjoyed all of that. My my overriding memories really would be, yeah, he was granddad and, and baseball games and things like that were, were, were a treat. Bobby, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing your unique background. I can tell, like, I don't know if that's where you got your like level of passion for music and juggling, but it's like your, your granddad was a performer. You feel like a performer. You're definitely a coder. You're super enthusiastic. Thanks for sharing some of the things that you're working on to, you know, like I, we already talked about before. If you're not familiar with Akamai, go ahead and check them out. We'll link all the links below in our show. This is a tool, this software and hardware stack, actually, it's, it's everything, right? <laughs> is literally used by just about every application you touch. Like there's really, I can't think of, I would be shocked if there was a consumer product out there that it's not flowing through Akamai somewhere. Yeah, many of your favorite online apps, your online experiences for sure, yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Awesome, thanks Albert, thanks for having me, appreciate it. 